0: Please take your seats, and if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Philippians and chapter 4. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Or stand firm in this way in the Lord, my beloved. And that verse is like Janus, the Roman God, that looks both ways. It looks back to the previous chapter, as Paul has outlined the two great threats to steadfastness, the two great ideological threats, which would be legalism, self righteousness, and worldliness, self indulgence. And both can lead the church away from a steadfastness in the Lord. As he moves into chapter 4 now, he's going to outline three practical or more local threats to steadfastness. The first is um, disagreement. The second is um, distress or anxiety. And the third is discontentment. And so, we'll read those together from verse 2. I entreat Judia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, yes, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Amen. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, I was thinking again this morning about this text and our duty to stand firm in the Lord, to hold the line, so to speak, and my mind always goes back to that famous battle on October the 10th, 732, When Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, the Frankish king, um, stood against the Saracen army led by Abdul Raham Al Ghafiqi. And it was a dark day for the West on October the 10th, way back then. Um, The Um Umayyad Caliphate had spread basically from. Uh, Iran in the far east through the holy land up into turkey down across and uh, north africa and was up into spain and i was invading into france and charles martel was the only thing humanly speaking standing between islam and a thousand years of darkness if they had overwhelmed charles martel literally the world as we know today would not have existed the reformation would never have happened there's a whole host of world events that really hinged and hung on this moment. And it was a difficult time, not just because of the success of al army, but there were a number of other factors. First of all, uh, Charles Martel was outnumbered, almost three to one. People debate the numbers, but Charles had around 30,000 soldiers, and the Saracens had 80,000. That's a pretty significant weight difference, shall we say. To make matters worse, the Saracens were uh, all cavalry, basically, an armored cavalry at that, whereas Charles Martel's forces were all foot soldiers. So, basically, you had 80,000 armored horse charging down 30,000 men standing on their feet on the ground. That's not a very pleasant prospect, and an almost certain recipe for loss. Up to that stage, foot soldiers had never beaten the calv- ca- cavalry in uh, military combat. It was dark. And so, what to do? So, he did have two things in his favor, Martel did. He First of all, it was his home ground, so he got to pick where the fight would happen. And he picked wisely, he picked the top of a hill in Tours, southern France, near Poitiers. And That meant the horse had to gallop up the hill all day, every day, for several days during the battle. So, that was a good thing. And secondly, he knew his men. He'd fought with many of these men for 20 years. He knew he could trust them to hold the line, which is important because if a a line of men with spears or bayonets, modern-day lingo like at Waterloo, if a line of men will hold the line, horses will not gallop through spears and Lances. They will gallop right up to the line and then they will rear up. But if the line breaks, if a man is killed or a man turns tail and runs in fear, all the horses will coalesce on that moment, that spot of weakness, and the line will break and the force will be routed and the battle will be lost. And so On October the 10th, early in the morning, Charles Martel roused his men with a speech to hold the line. And they did. Day after day after day, they faced repeated cavalry charges against these Saracens who had their own lances and their own arrows with which to fire at the Franks. But they held the line, and Western civilization was saved. Paul here is speaking about the need for you and for me, for us as a church, to hold the line. And in particular, when it comes to holding the line, we need to be be aware those forces that would sap our morale as a congregation. And there are no better forces in the devil's arsenal to sap the morale of a congregation and to lead human beings to think, is it worth Staying here and holding the line, then the force of disagreement and distress, anxiety, and fear and discontentment. Those three Ds, if you like, can easily sap a congregation's morale, shatter its unity, and spend its efforts that could otherwise, or drain its efforts that could otherwise be spent in gospel means. And so this morning I want to begin with you looking at Yodia and Sintike, or Odious and Suntuchi, as one commentator likes to call them. These two women disagreements. One commentator said relationships can become atrociously tangled, and Christian relationships are no exceptions. These are good women. They have worked with Paul in the past, and they've worked with the apostle for the gospel in the past. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. They have labored side by side. This, this fight, this squabble that is currently destroying their relationship, it wasn't always that way. They used to be quite good friends, and they were youth mates in the gospel, sharing the gospel, working alongside Paul, and apparently joyfully. And furthermore, Paul has no doubt these women are saved. They're a good woman, he says, their names are in the book of life, verse 2. Good people can have bad arguments, and those arguments can shatter their unity and dislocate their usefulness for gospel ministry, and Paul calls them out. I'm sure it was mort- you know, mortifying for them. I mean, can you imagine being two women who used to be faithful servants of Paul, and now you're immortalized forever in Christians, Christian Scripture as two catfighters. I mean, you can, can you imagine? It just—it It is just, oh, I'm being overwhelmed with vicarious embarrassment for these two ladies. You meet them in heaven, oh, I, yeah, I've heard of you before, and they're going to go, oh, <laughs> Person after person. Oh, you're here, yes, and you're Sintouchi, Sorry, syntagm is going to be um, quite the reunion on the far side of the river. Well, as Paul um, leans in here, he gives us a masterclass on conflict resolution. First of all. He opens his heart. Verse 1, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And it begins and ends, this this sentence begins and ends with the word agapetos in the Greek, my beloved, whom I love. It's agapetoi, um, and it ends at the end with my beloved, the same word again, agapetoi, my beloved. He ransacks the, the Greek alphabet to show his concern, his yearning. He longs for these people. He feels about them the way I felt about Catherine when I went to India as a medical student. I was totally besotted with her, still am, but I was totally besotted, and I had to go off to India for six weeks on a, on, a medical, on, a, on a medical elective in my fourth year of medical school, and I was a lovesick puppy. All I marked off every day on my Robert Mermit Shane Bible reading. I crossed them off every day. I had a circle the day. I left the day. I would get back home again and see her again, and I crossed off every day as I went through the mall, I counted down the days. Couldn't wait to get back. Well, Paul felt that way about the church. I long for you, he said. And it reminds me that effective pastoral ministry rests on the foundation of assured pastoral love. The effective pastoral ministry rests on the foundation of assured pastoral love. And it's always worthwhile as you read through your under-shepherding commitments, Kyle, and my elders here, and as I read through the whole church's role each week, because they each have a, a section of the church to pastor, and I kind of have the whole shebang. But it's worthwhile looking down and saying, do all these people know that I love them? Are there some people on this list who have reason to doubt that I love them? And who needs to know that I love them? Who can I reach out to with a text message or a prayer or something to assure them that I love them? It's the old cliche, of course, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, and there is truth to that. Now, some people will use that as a reason to to not listen to the Word of God when it gets uncomfortable because they doubt their pastor's love. But you can expect the congregation—you can expect the session, right, to— Oh, not the session. You can expect Satan. There's a big difference. You can expect Satan to attack that, right, in your hearts. You spread little doubts, right? maybe I, There's no maybe about it. I do. I will call some of you the wrong name. I call my children the wrong name. <laughs> and I do. Josiah and Samuel, I always call them the wrong name. And, you know, so I'm going to call, and, and as they walk by, the devil's devil going to whisper in your ear, he doesn't even know who you are. <laughs> and you're going to go, I'm thinking that myself. And it'll just start. And and it's amazing how, how often the devil will use something small like that to get in. There was one pastor I know, and there was a woman in the church who made it her mission to get rid of him, and it became very obvious, and eventually there was a big to-do about it, And she was called before the session, and the session asked her, you're obviously bitter towards the pastor, what happened? Where did this all start? And as they kind of pulled the spaghetti, which is always a bad thing to do, but they're pulling the spaghetti of all the he said, she said moments, and it all went back to a moment when he ran out of the sanctuary and ran past her and never even greeted her. I remember that Sunday, I actually had a stomach virus, and my, my mouth was full of vomit, and there was more coming. And I was trying to get to the restroom. I didn't even know who I was. I was just trying to get to the restroom as fast as I could. And he ran past me. He went, good morning, pastor. He didn't even see her or much less acknowledge her. And that was the beginning. That one moment was the beginning whereby, you know, what she thought she knew, she knew she knew. And then it all began to unravel, that one moment. And so, It behooves us as pastors to ask ourselves: One of our, if we're going to pastor people through difficult situations, especially conflict, we have to ask ourselves: We have to be sure they know that we love them, and we need to take effort and ask ourselves that has got to be one of our main goals. Not in a a a political way, you know, not to make you feel our love in some kind of manipulative way. But how can we do? These people know that we love them, and how can we communicate that to them? What strategies can we enforce? and put in place to communicate love to the people we shepherd. Because if, unra- if that unravels, our capacity to do good will be greatly diminished. So, he opens his heart. Secondly, he doesn't take sides. It, and his, his Greek is very precise, as the translation puts it to, he doesn't say, I entreat Judia and Syntyche. If he said that, Judia would have wondered, why did he mention me first? Did he think I am mostly to blame? And if he had mentioned Judia second, she'd have thought, "Well, I came second. He mustn't think I am the one to blame." He mentioned her first; she must be the lion's share of this problem. And so Paul gives them both the verb. The bird, the verb, not the bird. I entreat Yudia and I entreat Syntyche. They both get the verb. I entreat you both. Doesn't take sides. And having said that, there can be a time in conflict when you have to take sides. There's nothing worse when you've got a counsellor who has, like, who's been, has got his PhD in DEI, diversity, equality, and you know, inclusivity, and he spreads the blame around. You know, sometimes you know, Sally Ann will be outrageously rude to to um, Joanne. And if you pass through them, at the end of the discussion, you say, "Well, you know, Joanne, you were just as bad as she was." That there's no, there's nothing more crushing than to spread the blame around. Sometimes there is a chief instigator in, in, in conflict, and they need to be called to the mat for it. But here, Paul doesn't take sides, which lets me know at least that there, maybe there was no clear winner or loser in this argument. No one was clearly right, and no one was clearly wrong. And maybe they were both obviously wrong in the argument. But he doesn't take sides. And also, what's even more interesting to me, he doesn't mention the issue. He doesn't go back and say, well, remember that argument you all had? It all began over the, who made the best chili at the chili cook-off, and, you know, Yudia, you got your feelings hurt because you came second, and Cynthia came, se- came first, and then we're off to the races. Well, he doesn't say you had this discussion, you know, about whatever theological issue du jour, and Yudia, you were wrong, and Cynthia, you were right. This is one of those situations where um, the issue actually doesn't really matter. And I've often thought about that when I've done conflict resolution or tried to or been involved in marital conflict. The issue is never the issue, right? It never is. It's the issue behind the issue, the elephant in the room, the insecurity, the fear, the lack of trust, my previous, you know, my, I, people let me down in my life, so I'm expecting you to let me down. People lied about me. I'm expecting you to tell lies. People manipulated me when I was younger. I'm expecting you to manipulate me. And these kind of fears, insecurities, that kind of haunt us and are always in the background. are the elephant in the room in every argument, and we never fight about the issue. It's always the issue behind the issue. And then we also fight about the, the way we fight about the issue, right? We raise the issue, and then we are unkind and mean-spirited and, and judgmental, and we do the Darvo thing where you deny. Someone says to you, you are a bit rude there, and you go, I was not. You deny. Then you attack them. You are just as rude as I am. You're awful. And then you, you become the victim and they become the offender. It's Darvo. Deny, attack, and switch victim and offender. It's a common way of arguing. And that becomes the... That becomes the, the uh, the real argument. Meanwhile, the issue kind of walks off. It's just like the moonwalking bear last week kind of walks on, on the center stage, waves, and then kind of moonwalks off. And you're fighting about the issue behind the issue, and the way you fight about the issue, and the whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket, right? And so Paul doesn't mention the issue, which is amazing. And he does also enlist help. He's not there, of course, so he he asks this true companion to get in. And sometimes people are so, you know, lost in conflict that they can't find their way out, and they need help from one of the elders or one of the pastors in the church or from um, Phyllis or one of the ladies come in and help be a mediator. And that was the case here. So you think, if Paul didn't mention the issue— how on earth can he deal with the conflict? Right? Because every time I find somebody in conflict, they always come and they want me to understand the issue. And they want me to agree with their interpretation of the issue, take their side in that interpretation, and then blame the other person. It's all your fault. And the other person's exactly the same. No, no, that's not the way it was at all. And before you know it, pulling out the spaghetti, you get into this awful he said, she said malarkey, and all you get for your trouble is a lot of mess on your shirt and spaghetti everywhere. And the issue is often complicated. It's locked behind the words you use, what I meant to say, what I actually said, and what, I, what you heard me say were three very different things. Then there was the tone of voice that I thought I used, and the tone of voice you heard me use. Then there was my body language that I thought I was using, and you actually saw a different body language. And all of that mess muddies the issue, and it becomes impossible. And nine times out of ten, when Christians are locked in conflict, going into the issue just makes it worse, because it's just so complicated. And you can never get through the he said, she said, and the misunderstanding, and the misinterpretation, and all those things. And so, what do you do? And so, Paul brings them not to the issue, but he brings them to the mindset, the gospel mindset that you must have if you're to find your way out of any conflict. He says, I entreat you, Judea and I entreat Syntyche, literally in the Greek, to be of the same thought or mind in the Lord. To be of the same thought or the same mind in the Lord. And what he's doing is, he's actually going back to Philippians 2, where exactly the same phrase is found. It's found in verse 2, and it's found in verse 5. Let's read those five verses together in a second. This is the theory, and Paul's now applying it in an argument. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, the love of God the Father, any participation in the Spirit, it's a triune, he's talking about fellowship with the triune God, any affection, any sympathy, if your soul is in touch with God at all, Paul says, and your your soul is resonating in His presence, like the big fire truck outside my office, occasionally the fire truck will park in here and it'll go on idle, like a huge Harley Davidson, and everything in my office that hasn't the same resonant frequency starts to vibrate with it, with the fire truck, and it's kind of just, and then I'll drive off and then I can get back to work. But when you're in the presence of God, your soul should resonate with the encouragement of Christ and the comfort of the Father's love and the, and the fellowship, the sharing of the Holy Spirit, who exists to share with you the glories, the, the resources, the bounty of the Godhead. And then Paul says, if, 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 if you've any connection with God at all, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Exactly the same phrase that's used in um, Philippians 4 verse 2. I I encourage Yodia, I encourage Syntyche to be of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind—same word, phroneto in the Greek—have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was a somebody, the only somebody there ever was, he became a nobody. He emptied himself, not by laying aside his deity or his dignity, but by adding to himself the form of a bond servant. Right? And became obedient to the point of death. I want you to think the way Christ thought. And that is the mindset. And that's powerful. Because you ever find when you're fighting with somebody in the church, or you're fighting with somebody in your home, like your wife, or your husband, or your children, or your sibling, that it all becomes about you. Your mind, the less you think about Christ, the more you think about yourself and your hurty feelings and how this person has betrayed you and hurt you and stabbed you in the back or was unkind to you. And that mindset it pulls you further and further and further out of the Godhead and away from God and into yourself and the twisted, bitter, poisonous, toxic waste dump of your own heart. And that's the way you think in conflict. It's no wonder you're, you're fast on the way to hell. When all you can think about are your hurty feelings, and all they can think about are their hurty feelings, and your minds are torn apart because you haven't got the same mind. You're not thinking like Jesus thinking only about yourselves, and it's the mindset that determines how you fight, which is exactly the point that James makes. If you turn there, if you go to… and um, later in the passage, James will say, let your gentleness be known… sorry, Paul will say, let your gentleness be known to all men, or reasonableness is the ASV, but it's gentleness is the, is the word. If you look in James, it's exactly the same word James uses when he speaks about fighting… James, four, James 3, sorry. Notice he's speaking here now about the two different mindsets, the two different sources of intellectual thought and wisdom by which people engage with conflict. There's one from above, which is heaven, and there's one from below, which is hell. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do you not boast and be false to the truth? This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is 1st Pure, then peaceable, gentle. There's that word that Paul uses let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And Paul is saying how you fight shows whether or not you're thinking with the mind of heaven or the mindset of hell. And it shouldn't surprise you to know which mindset you choose will, to a large measure, determine whether your home is full of peace or war. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You cannot, there has to be the right conditions, right? You you don't go sowing grass seed in a freezing cold day. It's got to be springtime, warm. The soil temperature's got to be, I don't know, warmer than like 75, I forget, whatever it is, there's a temperature. Ask Adair. She knows everything grassy. But, um, but um, you know, how, the soil's got to be the right temperature, right? Um, what temperature? And for there to be righteousness sown in your home, there's got to be the temperature of peace a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. You can't sow a harvest of righteousness in a season of war by those who make peace. It's the mindset. And it, really, it really spoke to me. So often, you know, whenever a couple come to my, my office in trouble and fighting, I go, okay, well, who said what, and we're off to the races. He said this. It really hurt my feelings. That's not what I meant. Yes, it is to you. And it's like, you're, it's like no, it's not. It is to you. I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. And I'm going, Lord, if I had a, C, if I, if I had a CCTV camera, I'd have, I'd have some hope. But I don't really know what happened. They don't even know what happened. The fog of war descends. You lo- literally lose your mind. Your, your capacity to remember who said what in what order and with what tone of voice is totally lost. You start negative filtering. Everything is read through the worst possible light, and it's all a mess. And that often just makes the whole thing worse, talking about it from that You can never really—especially it, 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 when there's been some time building up, and there's also—this isn't the first fight they had in their marriage, of course. It's gone on for years often, and there has been building to this crescendo. And so, Going through the he said and she said is, a, is, a, is not entirely irrelevant because sometimes you've got to go through what actually happened. But actually, Paul says the biggest thing is the mindset. Are you thinking with different minds? Or are you thinking with the same mind, which is always the gospel mind? Well,. How does the gospel mind help me? I mean, my husband's a real jerk, so how is thinking about Jesus going to help? It's not going to make him any less of a jerk. I grant your point. But it will help you bear with his jerkiness a bit better. Because whenever all you think about is how much your husband or your wife or your sister or your brother annoy you, what you're going to be looking for is justice. You're going to be... um, like your guy from Midsummer Night's Dream who wants his pint of flesh. Isn't that, is that Midsummer Night's Dream? Isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. I'm not a Shakespeare scholar, but, you know, you want your pound of flesh. It's Shylock, isn't it? He wanted his pint of flesh. And you want justice. I want someone to bleed. They hurt me badly, I mean, really badly. And I, I, I won't hurt them back. That's often the, the petty level our arguments get down to And Paul says, let's go back to the cross. Do you want justice? you want to see someone who experienced injustice on a colossal level? Let's go back to the cross and the mind of Christ on the way to the cross. I was away this week speaking to uh, church planters. And um, we went back to Psalm 69 and... Turn there a second with me, because it's a beautiful picture of what Christ experienced on the cross. It's a comic book edition, if you like, of, of Philippians 2, what it meant for Christ to empty Himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Um, what, what did it feel like? Oh. And, and, and if you can fill your mind with this When things are hard in your marriage, it'll help you get your mind off yourself and your hurty feelings and your own sense of injustice. What did it feel like? It felt like sinking where there was no bottom. Verse 1, this is words that David wrote for himself, but also to give Jesus a sense of what it would be like to go to the cross, like Psalm 22. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. There's a video I saw some years ago of this lake down in Louisiana, Lake Piaget, I think it's called, and some oil company was drilling in the middle of this lake and they didn't realize that actually there was a salt mine down there, and they drilled into the salt mine. Of course, all the lake water began pouring into the salt mine, And this huge sinkhole developed because the salt mines go on for like, like almost forever. So all the water from the lake um, was sucked into this hole with all the drilling activity. And there's a video. You can see the, these 40-foot cedar trees from the edge of the lake being sucked out into the middle of the lake and then just being sucked down below the bottom of the lake into the abyss. And so much water, actually, apparently the Mississippi River, someone told me this morning after worship, and they said that the actual flow of the river reversed as water from the gulf was sucked in to this lake, and a complete disaster. But as I watched that video some years ago of of these trees being sucked down beneath the bottom of the lake, I thought, could you imagine being out there swimming in that lake and being sucked down into the abyss below the bottom of the lake in the muddy quagmire, the darkness, the suffocation, being sucked down? That's how Jesus felt on the cross, being sunk beneath the weight of your sins into the ocean of wrath, that awaited him, where there was not one drop of mercy. It felt like waiting where there was no God. He says in the next verse, verse 3, I am weary with my crying out, my throat is parched, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. It felt like innocence being condemned where there was no justice. The next verse, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, and one of them is Almighty, it's God Himself, those who attack me with lies. Um, now, that, that would be speak of the Jews attacking Christ, but Christ is on the cross being attacked, and it's all wrong, it's all unfair, and He's being condemned where there is no human justice. It also felt like being exposed where there was no hiding. He says later in verse 5, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. And you think to yourself, hold on a second. When Christ was a little boy and growing up, when he, he got to that verse, did he stop singing? Is that why James and Joseph and his brothers hated him so much? Because he's so per- he thinks he's so righteous. He thinks he's, per- he's always perfect. No, Jesus sang those words because they were true of him, not because he had any folly of his own, but he knew all of the folly of his people. Can you look at Jesus and say, He's the Lord, my righteousness? Or he can look at you and say, You are my sin, my pride, my arrogance, my greed, my pornography, my bitterness. And he, and, and he felt exposed where there was no hiding. And he felt as if he was being broken where there was no pity. Verse 20, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I find none. They gave me poison for my food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That's Christ becoming your sin. And he went there Paul says, or the psalmist says, verse 7, for two reasons. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. For your sake. Dishonor has covered my face. But also it was for your sake, Christian. He went there because of God. But he also went there, the psalmist says, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And the house is not a building, it's a people, Right? It's because he loved you and he went there. He exposed his soul to all that injustice to save you from divine justice. He got what he didn't deserve in order to save you and me from what we do deserve. If you can't see the relevance of that next time you're in a fight with your wife or husband, you're not thinking hard enough. Because so often, I mean, we can cope with being blamed, can't we? Like, your wife's blaming you for something, right? You did something wrong. I don't know. You forgot to get the cream from Kroger or somewhere, right, or Harris Teeter for dinner, and dinner's going to be ruined now, and the Joneses are coming over, and they're going to think she's a bad cook. There's no cream for the dessert. It's all your fault. She's giving you an earful, right? And And you have to admit, right, that you deserve blame for that. You forgot to get the cream, right? But you want to be very careful because you don't want to get blamed more than is absolutely just. And you're getting blamed far more than that at the moment. And so you will fight to make sure the blame is measured just perfectly so she doesn't blame you too much. It's not all my fault. You ought to have reminded me. You know I'm forgetful. Why didn't you remind me? And it's partly her fault, you see. You want to get the blame off you onto her. It makes you feel better right? And so much of our stupid arguments come down to that level of how much blame do I deserve? How much blame do you deserve? All of it, frankly. But that's where we get into the argument, right? And that's not the mind of Christ. Christ came and exposed himself to all of the blame for all of the sin for all of his people, and that includes you and her. And if that doesn't shut your mouth and my mouth in those moments when we're blaming our spouse for all the things she did wrong or all the things that he did wrong. As one man said, when I get in a fight, my wife becomes historical. Do you mean hysterical? No historical. She reminds me of all the bad things I ever did, right? And you think, but but suddenly you think, Christ has borne away all of the bad things I ever did because he loved me. And he exposed his chest to that, his naked chest and his naked pelvis. He was stripped naked. There was no loincloth. And bore the shame of it for all of my sins because he loved me. if you think about that, the more I think about that, the less I think about my hurty feelings and my offended rights for justice. And I bow my head with shame and I think, Oh God, how could I be so self-righteous and frankly ungrateful? And so, it's the mindset of peace these women need. They're a good woman. They're involved in an argument. They're probably blaming both sides. I don't know. But if they don't get the mindset, the same mindset, they're never going to get the lifestyle of peace. And so, Paul brings them to Jesus and the mind of Christ. And only then can you rejoice in the Lord always, always, that's why that's, that's joy, where is your joy, is such a devastating question, because it exposes what your heart really wants and how much you think your heart really has. And if you're in Christ and are thinking that way, your heart has everything Christ has, and there's always a reason for joy, even if you've lost your savings in Silicon Valley Bank or whatever that's gone south, right? Because. What you've lost is nothing. What you have is everything. And then you can always be gentle because Christ is always with you. Let your gentleness be evident to all men. and Because the Lord is at hand. He's beside you. Would you speak that way if Christ was in the room with you? We often forget ourselves, like the young student for the ministry, true story, RTS, student for ministry, and he's preaching with one of those pompous voices, you know. We're we'll gathered here today to worship God. And it, but he didn't speak like that the rest of the week. It was just in the pulpit. He had this pulpit voice that came on. And um, at the end of his sermon, the professor looked at him and said, Son, I have a question for you. When you drive through the, the drive through line at McDonald's, do you order a hamburger in that voice? then don't preach in that voice. Well, would you speak to your wife the way you do and and to your husband the way you do if you are conscious that Christ is in the room? Now, of course, we forget. We're off to the races. Our mind is full of selfish ambition. Me, myself, and I.com. And the more I think about that, the further and further I'm away from Christ. That's exactly Paul's point. You've got to get your mind off yourself, back to Christ, and think with the same mind, not of the petty things that divide you, outside the gospel, but the great Christ who unites you in the gospel. That's the answer to all of our disunity here on earth, is the unity we have with Christ and in Christ in heaven. Only then can we have joy. Only then can we be gentle. Only then can we begin to resolve conflict as we get the focus off ourselves and our hurty feelings and all of the misunderstandings and the misinterpretations, and we think about Jesus and how much more that unites us, how much more that brings us together than ever drives us apart. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for its power. It's so convicting. Help us, O God, in the moment of tension to think more of Jesus than we do of ourselves, and to let our joyfulness and our gentleness and our steadfastness increase, and not to allow petty disagreements to unhinge our unity in the gospel. We offer these prayers in Christ's name. Amen.